I've long believed that if you made something so cool it can't be ignored, then you've got a real business opportunity. Not a business yet, just an opportunity. But put in the work to build a real product, manage production, and dial in the marketing, and that opportunity can explode into a wildly successful brand. That's exactly what Tensile founder Alex Shirley Smith did with his amazing floating tree tents. Listen in as he tells where the idea came from, why he was inspired by Ewoks and saving the forests, how he overcame crazy manufacturing problems, including having the Chinese government ban him from his own factory, and yet still managed to grow sales volume more than 10 times every year. All that and more right here in this amazing episode of The Build Cycle. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Real quick, before we get started, I'm happy to announce this episode is brought to you by Health IQ. Later in the episode, I'll tell you a bit more about them and why they could save you real money on life insurance. Don't have life insurance? Never thought about it? Frustrated that you're paying more because you're lumped in with unhealthy people? Don't worry, you're not alone. I'll explain. But first, let's hear how Alex changed the tent industry and grew faster than you could ever imagine. So Alex, in a nutshell, what is Tensile? Uh, in a nutshell, Tensile is a brand of portable tree houses that is basically made up of um, uh, a cross between hammocks and tents, but um, kind of more skewed towards tents because these are multiple person, multiple occupancy um tents that are suspended between trees at high tension uh, to create a flatbed and um, they are you know backpackable and uh, portable some of them less backpackable but uh, but essentially all of them are portable tree houses that you can um, take into the forest and set up within 15 uh, 15 20 minutes uh, to have a complete um, base camp in the woods very cool and i i love the i the fact that part of the idea for this came from when you were younger and watched return of the jedi and the ewok village and just wanted to kind of recreate that that treetop living environment and how old were you when you kind of that seed was planted uh i was six and return of the jedi was actually the second part of the seed uh the first part of the seed was um watching kind of uh children's news program about the destruction of the rainforest and I, I couldn't believe that the adults were letting it happen and uh was kind of trying to figure out why it was happening and it didn't really cross my mind at the time that it was all down to greed but when i saw return, return of the jedi about six months later i realized that you could save trees by giving uh live trees an alternative monetary value to that of timber by putting people in trees and having living accommodation in live trees so if you can put people in trees they won't chop them down right i think that's a a business model that a lot of small companies are trying to do now is to provide some sort of alternative means of uh, revenue for the people who live, you know, not just in the rainforest, but other areas where, you know, the, uh, the alternative is clear cutting or something else very destructive. And so it's, seems like a great way to come up with the business ideas to, you know, just find a different way to make money. That's not destructive. Uh, I think that's exactly what renewable energy is about. And I think that is the way that the tide is turning. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So, <clears throat> 
how did you settle on the design that you came up with with this floating tent? Like, what were some of the other ideas that you came up with over the years? Uh, well, I used to be a treehouse architect and um, build tree houses in wood and um, using, you know, bolts and nails and, um, um, you know, um, suspension cables and hard fixings. Um, and I decided that I wanted to make tree houses or space made out of the least amount of materials. So creating the maximum amount of usable space using the minimum amount of materials. And so I decided that instead of using conventional construction techniques, which basically rely on the forces of compression of putting, you know, one timber on top of another timber and then floorboards on top of that and then walls on top of that and everything stacked on top. I decided that I would turn that on its head and uh, use use spider's web as a as a um, inspiration and uh, through through this biomimicry create space by using the force of tension to create usable space so if you've got like a big sack of material and you pull it apart then you've just made you know a uh, a, a round blob let's say um, but only using a very thin bag. Fast forward to 2012 when you had your prototype featured in, I think you said, in Habitat. Yeah. Which was, I guess it still is. I, don't, I haven't looked at it in a while, but it was a really influential website on green design and environmentally healthy living thing. And that sort of blew you up. So that was 2012. But how long had you been working on a prototype prior to that? About two years so um, it was kind of a spare time project and a life savings project. So, um, and while having a baby, so oh, it was wow. one of those things where you kind of have a baby, you uh, you got a bit of savings in your bank. In my case, about ten grand. And um, while kind of taking some time out of work, you slowly nibble into that ten grand and create something new and. That's what I did, and I hoped that at the end of it, I might be able to make a living out of it. And uh, I wasn't sure that that was going to be the case until it went viral on um, in Habitat. Yeah. So the plan all along was to create a business. This wasn't just it's kind of a fun project to see what you could do. Yeah. My 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 first business model was like, well, if I can, because the uh, the first iteration of the tensile was actually a lot more complex than we than we have it now as a kind of sleek production model. But the first the first model was was fairly labor intensive, and and I was making them myself with a bit of help here and there. But um, the the first kind of business plan was to make ten or twelve of them a year, and that would kind of give me enough of a job to you know pay my bills. Right. And then it's obviously gotten much bigger than that, but we'll get to that. So in early 2013, you guys actually sold the first one, but that, that span of time between then, it sounds like once in Habitat posted about it, you guys got a ton of interest and exposure. Were you just like, how did you keep people interested in that, you know, almost year span between that first bit of hype and the time where you actually had something to sell? That's a Good question. Um, so when when it first blew up, we had obviously a lot of interest and a lot of emails coming in, and we were able. I was. This is me by myself at that point. Um, I was able to pretty much um, start conversations with with a lot of the people that had emailed me. Um, a lot of which obviously never came back. And then some of which were like, I'll wait, I'll wait until your website goes live. Um, and we already had a website. Um, we changed it over to a Shopify website six months later so that we could take payments. And so we could create a much better, you know, user interface. But, um, but essentially people just started following us on the Facebook page and coming back to look at our website uh, quite regularly to keep on top of our updates and we we provided kind of you know weekly updates on how we were going how we were driving the um, production forward how we were refining the design and then when we pressed go on the 
website, I think in September 2012, we um, we had you know buyers straight away. So straight away we were in you, you know into into creating an income, which meant that we could then pour it straight back into production. And we made one, we sold one, we made two with that money, we sold two, we made four. We it was like that. It was literally organic growth um, and and. Uh, um, um, responding to the demand that we were we were getting and trying to keep up with it, it, it rapidly grew. Yeah. So those first couple, were you guys hand sewing them or, or making them yourselves? The prototypes we were hand sewing. Then when we when we developed the Stingray, which was the the first production model, uh, three person tree tent that we that we first started selling. We um, we got someone in to help us on a machine who who could sew properly um, because we thought it wasn't very fair that people were paying such high prices for our terribly terribly stitched <laughs> um, hand you know created tents. And then we moved production quite quickly to um, to a small family run paragliding company in in south of London. And uh, and they were able to do us uh, three or four or five units a week, um, but the the orders were coming in faster than that. So we we quite soon outgrew those people. And is that when you moved to China production? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And once you guys moved to China, that becomes one of the really interesting parts of the story. In that you you set it up with a factory, and then at some point it, it sounds like you outgrew them and opened your own factory so we started production with um an existing tent factory in china and they um they had us pretty far down on their priorities list because we were only giving them orders for 50 tents 100 tents 150 tents at a time um it kind of grew over time but um then an order would come in from Quechua in in sort of germany and uh with four thousand tents and suddenly we'd be getting a phone call or an email saying your stock's going to be three weeks late because we've got to do this big order first and we were kind of always you know found ourselves being pushed back time wise and um also the quality <clears throat> the quality wasn't super great there was always manufacturing mistakes on every batch that turned up so in the end, after about six or seven months, we decided to open our own factory so we could be completely in control of our own timelines and our own quality. And how do you go about opening your own factory in China? In our case, we um, we got quite lucky because the client manager at the old factory, um, I guess he had been working at the factory for four years or so, and um, he saw that we were getting quite frustrated with each batch having something wrong with it and he basically just offered that he would leave his job and and come and come and work with us and help us open a factory so we were quite lucky to get someone on the ground in the business uh local uh young enthusiastic intelligent easy um able to speak english and willing to jump ship on his current employer to um, take a chance and um, join two Western gringos who didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> so, did you guys buy an existing factory and equipment, or did you have to buy, you know, like find a new building, new equipment, and set everything up from scratch? Yeah, so we rented we rented a space, we rented a um, a complete floor of an existing building. And we, yeah, the first thing we did was put in a five-layer um, epoxy resin floor so that it was um, not just a, a naked concrete floor, but, but a nice rubbery floor that we could roll trolleys on. Um, we bought six machines, fabric, hired six machinists, and uh, all the widgets we needed. And, I mean... Just before we made that move, we had about a hundred grand in the bank, and setting up the factory cost us ninety-eight grand. So we had two grand in the bank, and we were like, "Well, you know, we've kind of thrown our chips, so it's better work." Okay, so I, I, I'm kind of curious if you ha we're starting from scratch and everything, why not just open up a factory there in the UK where you're based, as opposed to keeping everything in China? Uh, well, we were testing the waters with the UK production, but every tent was having to be made like production cost 
um, was uh, between five and six hundred pounds, which meant that we had to make sure that we had um, all of our like make a living out of that and pay the rent on our studio and all of that. So minimum we could have sold them for was um, about twelve hundred pounds. And then, of course, if we wanted to leave a margin for retailers, which we didn't even think about at that point, we would have had to we would have had to triple or quadruple that price. I, I don't know how familiar everybody is with how things work out there, but retailers seem to want to purchase at about fifty percent um, of what they're going. Uh, sorry, at a rate of about fifty percent of what they're going to finally sell it for. So they want they want a fifty percent margin, and that's obviously to cover their own. Um, staff and costs and rent and, um, and and all their running costs as well so and have marketing budget also on top of that so we didn't know that at the time and we were selling them for about 1200 pounds um, to begin with but then when we moved to production to China we decided to run a um, an experiment and for every and every month we dropped the price by a hundred dollars and every month that we dropped the price by a hundred dollars, we sold three times as much wow. stock. So at, at some point, we kind of got down to, a, to the lowest we could get, um, and, and we found a really nice balance between um, the, the cost we could um, sell the tents for on the open market and the uh, number of tents that we were selling, um, and it so, sort of started to become a sustainable business at that point. Huh. And so what was the main driver in the increased cost of producing in the UK? Was it labor or something else? Labor and uh, so so labor is about twice as much as producing it in um, China. And that that may not even be a completely fair comparison because um, Chinese workers work twice as fast as hmm. as they do here so it, the uk manufacturer could make for us you know four tenths a week and the chinese were making us about 10 tenths a day wow and uh, yeah that um maybe not with the same number of staff so if we go one one english person making a tent would be maybe one tent every two days and the Chinese person would make four, like two and a half tents in a day. So, so yeah, it's about they work about twice as fast as as we do. Huh. Okay. I think that's just down to skill. Firstly, it's down to skill, and it's also down to, um, you know, their their um, the way they use the machines. You know, I think the the UK people are kind of more slow and ploddy and um, and uh, like to take tea breaks, whereas the Chinese really just like to hammer through it, and they get really good at doing straight seams really fast. Right. Well, it's very similar in the bike industry. I mean, it's it's not just the cost savings of moving bike production or components over to Asia. It's it's the expertise is there. So yeah, you get yeah. the efficiencies as well. <clears throat> yeah. So they've got the expertise, but one of the main factors is that all. All waterproof fabrics are made in China, pretty much. So if you want a PU fabric, which is fire resistant and complies to uh, all the regulations that we in the West um, set down for and our outdoor industry as, as safe and healthy, uh, lightweight polyester and nylon fabrics, all of those fabrics are produced in the Far East. So if you want to make a tent in the UK, you're bringing over rolls of fabric from China that weigh about six or seven hundred pounds a roll, about six and a half feet long, and maybe one foot diameter. So you're shipping at massive cost these huge rolls of fabric across from China because they're not made in England, um, and then you've got to like start making it. So you're, you're double saving basically by doing it there because all of, you want to be producing in the place where the raw raw material is is being produced. Right. Okay. So you guys open your own factory and then your prior factory gives you some serious headaches. What happened? Yeah, so we opened up our own factory and my uh, my partner Kirk moved himself and his three children over to China and his wife and um and 3 weeks later the government came and shut our factory down and put um 
um, you know, official tape across the door and said, if you if you break this official tape, you're going to jail. Um, because the the factory that you used to work in have said that you've stolen the tent design from them, and uh, and so we were we were kind of um, free falling at that point. We were like, "What the hell's going on?" <laughs> so so they they shut our factory down and um, lied about nicking our yeah sorry about us nicking our own design of tent from them. So we decided that. Um, we, as we still had orders coming in, we would set up a secret secret factory. So on the other side of town, we went and rented a new space and bought new machines and new fabric and new workers <laughs> and set up a second secret factory, which we called Storage. So if we ever referred to it, we would refer to it as Storage. And um, just in case our phones were tapped and we, I mean, we'd already been uh, followed in the car and all kinds of like shady stuff before already. But, um, so we set up a second factory while we fought the case against, uh, against the, um, first factory that had cited that we stole, you know, the tent designs. So we had to produce all the invoices and all the, um, uh, all the documentation to prove that basically we had already started production on the stingray tent in UK and had been selling it for nine months before well for four months before we came to china and for nine months before we opened our own factory right so we won we won that case and uh and then all of a sudden we've got two factories (laughs) yeah that's impressive because i've heard so many horror stories from smaller brands who move production to china and then either their designs get ripped off or they get in a batch and the the construction quality is just complete crap and there's there's almost nothing they can do because they're at the mercy of these factories to produce their stuff. So was there, other than like just proving that you guys had been manufacturing beforehand, were there any particular things that you had to say or do that you think helped your case? Well, we were able to produce all of the sketches and um, design work for that model, which of course the other factory couldn't produce because they didn't have any because they stole our, our model. Um, but you know, that horror stories come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and we didn't get, we didn't get out scot-free. I mean, we, uh, we had our factory shut down, but also when we left that factory, that first factory, we, um, we had to leave our, our, um, fabric cutting patterns, which are kind of cardboard, uh, stencils of each panel of fabric uh we we left those in the factory so ever since then we've had a a kind of running battle because they are able to produce our tents um out of out of the materials that we basically left behind and and weren't savvy enough to take with us or rip up or alter before we left Um, now we do have a running battle with uh with them a legal one and uh it looks like we're winning um but the problem is with these the chinese is that they can they can produce five or ten and they can they'll give it they'll ship it out to another factory a trade a trading company to put it on alibaba under a different name and then we shut that down and they'll do it under a different name and so it's like what, what do you call it bop in the mole or something mole <laughs> whack-a-mole whack-a-mole yeah huh so is there do you have a real problem with counterfeits then We've been really lucky in that we don't have a real problem with counterfeits. We've got a we've got a minor problem with counterfeits. And do they are they knocking off the brand too? Like, could somebody potentially buy one thinking it's a tensile tent and it's no. not? Okay, so it's no, not going to be under your the brand. The brand is safe. Um, it's just um, the I think at the moment it's the just the connect and the stingray. Some of them do pop up. Uh, the stingray, the ones that I've seen popping up of the uh, the knockoff stingrays, they don't actually look anything like our tents at all. So if anyone knows anything about tensile, they'll they'll be able to spot those right off because um, uh, they they look terrible. And the Connect model ones, um, if you look carefully, you'll, they've also had to 
used i mean we've upgraded our tents since since then and they're still using the first iterations of all the kind of the mistakes we made back in the you know in the first stages so um i i would just be I would be cautious because, of course, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're really making. They're just making something that they think sells, but they don't know um, the nuances of the sort of structural engineering that goes into the fabrication of the floors. So they're not going to be as strong as a as a original tensile, obviously. Right. So kind of why we're on the subject is not exactly counterfeits, but you do have competition. There are other brands making floating tents. So what, what do you guys do to separate yourself or you know, kind of convince the marketplace that Tensile is what you want versus a competitor? Um, well, at the moment, you know, our brand speaks for itself. We've got full customer service. We've got satisfaction guarantee. There's, there, I mean, if you find another tree tent company out there, um, you'll basically know that it's it's a, a fraudulent counterfeit because because it will have bad English and it'll it'll look Chinese. Okay, but so do you not? Is there not another legit company making tree tents, you know, of their own designs? There's one other small one that does make um, that does that ha- has been smart enough to come up with its own designs. Yeah, there is, um, and and but like between us and between them, we've kind of come to an agreement that we're not going to mess with each other. So we've decided that we'll leave him alone because he's been smart enough to kind of get a couple of designs in in between our models so like where we've had a you know a jump up between the connect to the stingray he's kind of got something in between there which he's come up with himself and um to be honest you know as long as people are in trees um it it kind of helps our cause so we've we've decided that he's been he's been smart enough to earn the right to uh to create his own tree tent and um we're kind of we're kind of happy to to let him sit there in the market but yeah you're right he's he's our one legit competitor we do have okay and and what sort of patent protections do you guys have i mean presumably you've patented the design and some of the features right correct yeah we've got pretty good patents but we weren't able to get a patent on tree tents as a concept because someone in 1929 already did that. And now for a quick break. Don't worry, I hate scripted sponsor messages just as much as you do. I think any sponsor needs to provide real value to you for listening. Health IQ is a life insurance agency that works specifically for healthy, active people to bring us lower rates than we'd ever get on our own. Why? Because they negotiate for thousands of cyclists, runners, crossfitters, and other athletes getting the policy underwriters to commit to a lower rate on our behalf. One friend of mine, a swimmer, saved more than $400 per year on the policies for he and his wife. But saving money isn't the only reason to check out Health IQ. As an entrepreneur, I've got a million things going on. I'm also the breadwinner for my family and the income provider for my employees and contractors. If something happened to me, I want to know that these people will be taken care of. As the founder, any savings I can get on insurance or anything else goes straight to my bottom line. And Health IQ uses real health data to get us all lower rates. Which is good, because I spend a lot of time and energy staying fit. So the last thing I want to do is pay more for insurance just because I'm lumped in with a less healthy average. Curious? Check them out and show your support for this podcast by going to healthiq.com slash buildcycle. That's healthiq.com slash buildcycle. Thanks, and now back to this episode. So you, you talked a little bit about sourcing the materials and, and doing so local to the manufacturer. How do you guys go out and find the exact materials you want, and do you push the material suppliers at all to produce something specific for you, or are you just looking for stuff that's off the shelf? No, we, um, you know, we've got a... Uh, what what you might call a brand specific floor fabric, which is a nylon polyester hexagonal composite uh, ripstop material, which is our kind of trademark floor fabric um, made made out of these hexagonal ripstop shapes. 
um, PU coated, so it's obviously waterproof. Um, and then the for the fly sheets, yeah, we do use pretty much off the shelf 30D, you know, um, PU coated fly sheet material that that doesn't need to have any structural integrity to it so we went out and we found ourselves um, and created our own floor fabric but for the insect mesh it's off the shelf for the um, fly sheet the rain covers they're they're off the shelf fabrics as well i want to talk numbers because i think it puts it in perspective so when i met you last summer the You mentioned, I might get these wrong, so I'm going to let you say the numbers, but basically your growth from like year one to year two to year three was just astronomical. Can you share those numbers in either in unit volume or dollars? Or Yeah, I, I can't remember it in dollars. I, I remember it in units though because <clears throat> it was quite um, – we always worked in units in those days. But um, So in the year one, we sold 50 units, and in year two, we sold – 500 units and in year three we sold 5,000 units and in year four we sold eight and a half, eighteen and a half thousand units. That's, I think that's basically how it went. Yeah. yeah, that's what I remembered. It kind of like it was a 10x from year to year to year for the first bit and, and then yeah. it sounds like even more. I mean, that's just incredible. So in my mind, it's it's almost an easy sell to get publicity for this because it's such a cool product and it's so unique. Um, has any of that worn off or is it still super easy for you guys to get PR? Um, it's super easy for us to get PR, but um, basically we had uh, we had a couple of big Facebook accounts post about us in, in the summer of 2016, which, uh, which blew our minds. Um, we got about, within the first four months of those of those um accounts posting this one video it had been seen 200 million times and uh and we got so many orders that it took us until uh from june beginning of june to the end of october to clear the backlog and and it's at that point that we bought like our current factory up the big the big factory we've got a really big factory now so so we had a massive spike in 2016 um, and we haven't experienced anything on that scale since. Um, and maybe probably, to be honest, we probably won't again, 200 million views. That's, um, that's a once in a lifetime, uh, you know, event, I think. It must've been a pretty good video. <laughs> it wasn't that good, but it was, you know, what it did was it explained what tree tents are. So, you know, it was like, you know, showed pictures of people using tree tents and it had, um, text going with it saying this is a tree tent it can be you know it can house three people it's this and that so we we just never really done anything that has that that had really broken it down for your average joe it was just always we were always playing to our existing audience i guess in some ways and and saying you know um high followers you know that kind of thing we were just amazed at how many people were following us and how, how fast our following was growing but when you take that video um that doesn't have any words it's just saying you know hey guys look at all your photographs that we've you know um collaged together in a one minute film and then you put text to it for the wider public to understand what you're doing um then then you get a wider wider audience um and it it did go really wide and um yeah, yeah, changed our business again. Brilliant in its simplicity. <laughs> yeah, I um, just wish that you could bottle um, virality. That would be good. Right, yeah, it would be good. You guys have, I mean, other than introducing new models, because you only have a few models, you know, a couple different sizes and formats, but you're sort of limited in that it has to have three points of connection to the trees. But I, I remember you saying that, uh, you keep expanding on the accessories, you know, so different levels or different types of dividers and segments and ladders and this, that, and the other. What percentage of your sales are accessories and add-ons versus just the tents themselves? Oh, uh, that's a good question. It's about 50-50. And is one growing faster than the other? Is one growing faster is, than Like, the are other? you selling, like, do you see, like, have the accessories caught up to the tents and, and are they... Like, are you growing the sales of accessories faster? Like, do you think that'll surpass 
or is are they kind of like inching up in step by step? No, I, to be honest, people are more interested in the in the in the main in the main main products. Um, they they sometimes sprinkle their purchase of the main product with a few accessories, and some existing customers come back and purchase some of the accessories to help um, their usability and um, you know. Uh, sometimes birthday presents so if you've got a stingray and someone's mum would buy you a ladder so it's a you know and they'll come back and they'll keep adding to their collection um which makes their time using the tensile stuff much more fun um we are just about to launch in three days time it's our fifth birthday and along with that we are launching five new main products so now bring our um, a large product range up to about 12 different models of um, tent and giant hammock. Jump back to marketing for a second. So what do you currently do for marketing? Um, well, we've got a PR agency over in Bend, Oregon, who's helping us um, promote our Bend store. We've got a um, bricks and mortar store in Bend. We've also got a bricks and mortar store in, in Ogden, Utah. And um, so they're helping us promote in the magazines um and then the rest of the the rest of the marketing we do in-house on social media so you know we've got a pretty substantial instagram following a respectful facebook following um a pretty meager twitter following because it wasn't something that i paid much attention to in the first uh few years but um uh, you know our followers are pretty hardcore diehard die fans you might call them and uh always eager for our latest news and sort of getting involved in um, our events and we're running our own festivals this summer one in america and one in europe for fans of both sides of the pond and uh, looking forward to like you know inviting people and having them come and meet the team and jump around in the new the new range of tents and and seeing them for themselves that's cool. As far as retail goes, you guys are in REI. Are there any other major chains, either in the U.S. or abroad, that are carrying your product? Uh, yeah, I mean, in uh, so in America, we've got Moose Jaw. Um, don't know if we're still in backcountry. Some something tells me that they didn't sell through last summer's stock, and they they haven't purchased on the pre-order this year. So Moose Jaw, Avid Max, uh, MEC in in Canada. Canadian Tire in Canada. Um, in Germany, we've got Bergfreund. We've got Beaver, uh, which is a big one in sort of um, UK, Belgium, Holland, Netherlands, um, and Luxembourg. Um, Ave Compare is a big one in France that we're in. And yeah, I, I think there's one in in Australia called Rays that's, that's taken us. So we're, we're in about, I don't know, somewhere around 10 major multi chain multi store chains right do you is there any kind of conflict with these guys or issues with you guys selling direct off your website versus them or do you like how do you manage that um they have to be okay with us selling because that's the way we sell you know um people i mean the way the way we the way we offer it is the people that buy direct from us uh off our website they get the kind of, I guess, full tensile customer service experience. And, and um, they can call us anytime we've got, you know, someone on call, on live chat, in the office, in the store, 24-7, because we've got locations around the world to cover all of those time zones. And our team are obviously completely trained on tensile products. And if you, if you buy from some of the other chains, you may get, you may get, um, one or two of the uh, store managers or you know staff knowing exactly all the details and and all the um, advice that they can they can give, but uh, many of them are still kind of you know a bit clueless to how how our products work. So you won't get the same level of customer service from them. Um, but of course, they they come with the credibility of you know their reputation and they they're there with their warrant their own warranty uh guarantees and um 
returns policies. So there's there's a, there's a good mix. I mean, at the moment, we haven't had a conflict of interest in, in Europe. It's quite difficult to have everybody stay at the same price sometimes because you can't you can't make them do that. Uh, so one person drops it and another person drops it. And all of a sudden you're in a kind of bit of a bidding war. So we have to just keep an eye on those. And, and for the most part, everyone is holding holding the line. So we've we're getting quite lucky. Yeah, oh, that's interesting because in, in the U.S. you can have a minimum advertised price. They call it MAP, Correct. where yeah. the piercing, then you know the store can sell it for whatever, but they can only advertise it at a certain price. Um, is that different in Europe? Are they allowed to advertise it at whatever, or can you not set a MAP? No, you know you can't set a MAP. It's called price fixing, and it's not allowed. Hmm. Good to yeah. know. All right. Well, I want to kind of finish up with, I've, I've got four standard questions I tend to ask. And the first is, so what tools, digital or otherwise, do you use to help run your business? Um, the store, um, up until now, has been a Shopify, um, you know, off-the-shelf web store. We run our email off Microsoft Outlook. We run our... Um, Shipping and logistics through a company called Shipwire and PayPal. And that's about it. PayPal, Shipwire, Shopify, and Microsoft Outlook. Yeah. And those are, those enable you to sell, I guess, around the world, right? Correct. Yeah, correct. And do you just have warehouses set up in each... Region. I mean, I assume you have a U.S. warehouse to fulfill U.S. orders, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. U.S. warehouse for distribution in America, and and one in Vancouver for Canada, and one in Germany for Europe, and one in Australia, and one in Japan, and of course anywhere else can be sent out from China. And are these third-party fulfillment centers, or do you guys actually employ like a warehouse manager? In, in in Ogden, Utah, we have our own fulfillment distribution center. It's our own. Okay. It's at the back end, of our, back end of our store. We've got a big warehouse. Everywhere else, it's third party. What operational or management challenges keep you up at night? Um, that's a good question. It's uh, mostly making sure that the in-house team are... Um, communicating effectively and clearly because of course we're over three time zones and there's cultural and language barriers um uh, to overcome and uh you know that poses challenges sometimes and there can be miscommunication sometimes and there can be uh misunderstandings sometimes and and uh the worst part is that sometimes you've got to wait until tomorrow to get your answer so um yeah i think being stretched over Three time zones is, is, is one of our biggest challenges. Um, apart from that, everything seems to run quite smoothly at the moment. Fingers crossed. Touch wood. <laughs> so is there, have you guys found a solution for that? Like uh, Slack or Skype or, or is there a product or service that you think would help solve that problem for you? We've tried Slack. It got a bit messy. We try, we, we do Skype. Um, we do full Skype meet, team meetings every two weeks. Um, and, uh, have everybody touch base and have everybody um, put items on the agenda that they need talking about with the whole team. We try to keep an open communication policy so that uh, the guys in the UK are available until nine or 10 at night so that there's a good, good enough crossover with the American team for most things to get talked about and done. Um, and, uh, and, and with China, if, they need to be pulled into a conversation then then it kind of gets a little bit difficult but as long as it's no more than once a month it can it can happen even if some of us have to stay up pretty late right okay so last one what are one or two challenges you face in building your company that you could offer advice on so that other entrepreneurs can learn from it i would um I would suggest starting off with, you know, a Squarespace or a um, or a Shopify type, or, or even Magento type shop front. Um, someone that takes all of the back end worries out of you, and they've already set up to take, you know, PayPal, Amazon Pay, um, Apple Pay, all of those payment options. 
Um, so keep your um, shop as simple and off the shelf as you can. Obviously, you're going to customize it to best suit your brand. But it's really important that you don't get bogged down in the sort of fulfillment back end part of your business when what you really need to do is make sure that you are communicating um, directly and often with your core fans and using them to help build your um, your brand and your the, the awareness of your brand through you know engaging them in either uh, giveaways or um, some kind of I mean we, we we ran a couple of really cool competitions where we were like okay we're gonna throw out can somebody design us the new tent and we had so much feedback come back from people saying what about something like this what about something like this and it was really engaging and of course you, you give a tent away to the winner and you say all right we're gonna try to put it in production and then and um, so having them feel involved is really great and um and the, a lot of fans and followers are, are really loyal and you want to um you want to embrace that and nurture it as much as you can so don't get too bogged down in the in the weeds and try to keep your head above water basically yeah <laughs> so i actually have a follow-up and, and it's sort of about the the social media marketing that you do too is mm. is most of what you do on that front just posting and communicating via that or are you running paid ads and messages on you know facebook twitter instagram so we haven't um we shied away from paid ads until about a month ago and um and then we suddenly we just decided that we not suddenly we decided we we just we needed to because we've um uh, increase the size of our factory and we are basically now moving into a whole new phase of business we've decided that we're going to run some um, paid for ads for the next three months and see what effect that has if it does widen our audience or whether the organic growth of our followers and audience is is more effective in making those sales so we're at the moment trialing different techniques uh, ones that we haven't used or or even um, thought about before um, and of course as you grow you get advice from people within the industry who are like oh you're not doing that you really need to do that and um, and you kind of say well we haven't needed to do that until now but all right we'll, we'll take your advice because you've been in the business 20 years and um, so there's you know we're, we're trialing stuff and um, yeah just to answer your question we're in, for the next three months going to be running paid ads on I think yeah, all social media platforms, I'll say, because I, I don't actually know. <laughs> Are there any trade shows or events that you guys have gone to that have been particularly good for you, either to reach industry, you know, like retail buyers or consumers or both? Yeah, of course. Um, outdoor outdoor retailer exp exhibition that's been held in Salt Lake City for the last 10 or so years, um, which is now moving to Denver, Colorado, because they are uh, boycotting Utah for their opening up of the public lands to to drilling and exploration. Um, so the outdoor retailer in America and Friedrichshafen outdoor show uh, in southern Germany um, is also a big one for us in, in Europe. Uh, those are the two main um, wholesale accounts that we do. And then we also feature in some, some of the fun kind of festivals that you have over in America. Like we've been at, um, oh, what's it called? Euphoria and... I can't remember. Not Burning Man yet, but we have had a request. I don't um, think there's any trees out there, are there? No, but we've <laughs> we've got we've got some aluminium frames that we can we can deal with now. So it's um, yeah. I mean, we're trialing a whole bunch of stuff at the moment. We yeah, standalone frames is the is the next thing, so people can use their tensiles in the prairies. Very cool. Okay, uh, last one. I promise. Have you guys yeah. grown solely on revenues, or have you taken outside capital? Up to this point, solely on revenues. Is that? Do you foresee that changing, or can you continue to grow based on just off of revenues? I think we are about. Well, we are right now considering a bit of outside capital because we need to invest in a whole new. Um, or we are investing in a whole new back end to our website, a whole new front end to the website. That's pretty major um, investment for us. 
we've had to over the last two years invest in some heavy hitter personnel within the company um we intend to um Oh wait, we've got another couple of big, big things that we need to spend on. We need to up our PR game a little bit, and we have to also invest in uh, time and resources to make uh, next year's offering, which is going to um, it's going to disrupt the it's going to disrupt the hammock space again. So as much as we disrupted it when we first brought out suspended tents, we're going to try to do the same thing again next year, 2019 bringing out something crazy awesome i'll look forward to seeing it alex thank you so much for your time it was pretty cool hearing your story thanks tyler lovely i absolutely love this business alex didn't settle for making a better tent that wasn't even on his radar Instead, he wanted to solve a problem and do something that saved trees, a cause he's been passionate about since he was a kid. Rather than petition or protest, he simply created a product so amazing it couldn't be ignored. Once you see a tensile tent, you will want a tensile tent. Do your products or services elicit that type of response? If not, why? How could you make them so cool that people automatically want one? Or, how can you take a cause you believe in and find another way of getting people excited about it? People are selfish. They want to know what's in it for them. They may not care about the cause only because they don't see how it benefits them, but give them a way to care and there's a business opportunity. So quit hanging around and floating ideas with friends. Strap on those boots and start climbing toward your goal. I have several worksheets to help you drill down and get your startup idea ready for launch. I'll put links to those in the show notes for this episode, along with the usual timestamps and post-game analysis of everything Alex and I discussed. Check those out at thebuildcycle.com. Be sure to hit subscribe and leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, and until next time, keep building.